Let us pray. Lord Jesus Christ, you are the light of the world. Fill our minds with your peace. Infuse our hearts with your love. And make our hands ready to serve for your name's sake. The news of Pauline's cancer caught us all off guard. Neither her family nor friends could believe it. 49 years old, vibrantly active in numerous things, lector, altar guild member, vestry member, youth group sponsor, national church office holder, and mother of two teenagers and one young adult. Many people considered Pauline one of the true saints of the church, and now she had terminal cancer. How could this be? The doctors could do nothing to stop it or even slow it down. She entered the final stages of her illness during Holy Week that year, and in those days, those last days of her life, one at a time, Pauline shared a private moment with each child and her husband, Robert, before finally slipping into a coma. All had gathered around her bedside when she died Easter Sunday evening, her 50th birthday. I wonder what Pauline said to her children and husband in those final conversations. What does a parent say to a child, a spouse to one's spouse, a best friend or lover to their beloved other, when one knows that it might or will be the last conversation one has with that loved one. I imagine it would be something important, perhaps a summary or condensation of things said before. Maybe the words are things one always meant to say, left unsaid until now, before the opportunity ever to say them slips away. Most likely, something urgent gets said. We make a last-minute request. We swear a promise or to uphold a commitment. We exchange reassurances of one's continued well-being, both for the dying and the bereaved. Conversations like these we will never forget, no doubt. I feel quite certain Pauline's children could recall their final talk with their mother word for word. What would you say to your loved ones at such a time? If we could be assured that the very last thing we told someone was going to be remembered forever, we probably would choose choose those words very carefully. This, of course, begs the question, what is preventing us from saying these words now? Now think about this in light of today's gospel. Here in the 15th chapter of John's Gospel, Jesus is having his final meal in conversation with his disciples. The disciples do not realize this, of course, but in John's telling of the story, Jesus knows that it is. The plot is set. Judas has it in his heart to betray Jesus soon, and it is night. This Last Supper 
covers four chapters in John, 20% of the gospel. It is his final meal, and he wants to leave them with the best of his love. Like Pauline's final week conversations with her beloved family, these are the final thoughts Jesus has for his disciples before he experiences the worst of human rejection and violent death. Rejection and complete denial by many of these, his closest followers seated near him, sharing a common meal. Despite their brokenness, their failures, their frail human understanding and foolhardy promises, Jesus loves them anyway. I give thanks to God that Jesus loves the disciples anyway, for then I know he truly must love me, even with all my failures, shortcomings, and mistaken notions of how God works. Give thanks to God for the disciples, sisters and brothers, for if Jesus loves them, then he surely must love us too. And here Jesus says an amazing thing and an unexpected thing. I do not call you servants any longer because the servant does not know what the master is doing. But I have called you friends because I have made known to you everything that I've heard from my father. You did not choose me, but I chose you. The amazing thing is that Jesus now calls his disciples his friends. What does it mean to be a friend of Jesus? Well, since the advent of social media, particularly Facebook, the word friend has undergone a tortured change in the American vocabulary. What passes for a friend on Facebook may have little or no relationship to classic definitions of friends or friendship, which describe a close relationship carrying on over time and usually involving mutually shared experiences. Facebook friends might be someone we have never met or had a conversation with face-to-face. Ironic, isn't it? Facebook? I have friends on Facebook I went to high school with who often like or post positive comments on things that I post on my page. Yet in high school, these so-called friends wouldn't have given me the time of day if they had worn a watch on each wrist and I'd asked pretty please. You see, they never really took the time to get to know me when we were classmates, moving in the same spheres, the same hallways. So are they truly friends now? I think we see the difference. Jesus knows his followers, both then and today, through spending time with them, by abiding with them. For when you abide with someone, you become a friend to that one. How is it that Jesus spends time with us so that he can call us his friends? That's easy. When we spend time in daily prayer or contemplation or meditation, desiring to enter into God's presence intentionally, wherever we may be, we are abiding with Jesus. When we attend worship with the body of Christ gathered, listening to scripture, singing God's praises, and receiving the Holy Eucharist, we are abiding with Jesus. When we read and meditate upon scripture, either privately or in group study, and even commit portions of scripture to memory, learning stories and passages by heart, we are absolutely abiding with Jesus. 
Abiding is spending time with someone. And that is a critical element of true friendship, of building relationships. By calling his disciples friends, both the twelve and the holy women who supported him out of their resources, Jesus no longer sees himself in only a teacher-student relationship with them. Along with the disciples, Jesus calls us all into his relationship with the Father and makes us both his and God the Father's emissaries into the world. Jesus sends us out into the world to bear fruit. The term for a person sent out is apostle. Now, before you panic at the prospect of you being called an apostle and what that might look like in your life, Be assured, I'm not talking about you becoming an itinerant, hooping or hollering preacher, a Bible-thumping teacher, or a snake-handling healer. After all, we are Episcopalians. (laughs) Not that there's anything wrong with those expressions of following Jesus, because in the right context, they might be exactly the kind of messenger of God someone might need in his or her life. Simply put, to be sent out... The definition of apostle is to live in the world as if following Jesus mattered to you. To me. To live in the world as if Jesus mattered to us is evident in the choices we make, the things we spend our time doing, and the decisions we base our lives upon. That's the amazing thing. That Jesus calls his disciples his friends and sends them out as apostles to love one another. And we are his disciples, his friends. Lastly, the unexpected thing that Jesus says in this text, you did not choose me, but I chose you. This statement is truly unexpected because back in Jesus' day, if you wanted to study under a rabbi or teacher in order to understand the scriptures better or learn how to live an upright and holy life, you or your parents, most likely your father, went around and listened to a variety of teachers and rabbis before settling on one to study under. In other words, you chose who you were going to study with. However, Jesus says, you did not choose me, but I chose you. And this has nothing to do with anything specific about you, that you deserve this honor or that you're better than everyone else. And that makes you worthy of being chosen by Jesus. The bumper sticker, Jesus loves you, but I'm his favorite, does not apply here. (laughs) In fact, the opposite is true. Jesus chose us not on the basis of what we have done for him, but on the basis of what he wants for us and will equip us to do, to bear lasting fruit, to love one another as he loves us. Jesus is speaking very plain here. No one has greater love than this, to lay down one's life for one's friends. You are my friends if you do what I command. And recall, John is telling us this because Jesus is about to go out into the night and do just that. Lay down his life for his friends, for you, for me, and for the world. To lay down one's life can certainly mean just that, and still does 
for many Christians persecuted in various parts of the world even today. We all know what is happening in the Middle East to some Christians these days. However, to lay down one's life can also mean to lay down that which one might consider or hold as primary, as most important in one's life. To set aside personal ambitions and desires, dreams or goals for the good of those one loves, to put others first. We see this happen in many circumstances. On this observation of Mother's Day, I I think of the self-sacrificing love of parents for their children. And I think of my friend David's parents. Jose and Irma emigrated to Texas from Mexico in the late 1950s, settling in Dallas, and they raised six children. Jose, affectionately known as Pepe, was a cobbler, a shoemaker. Irma was a full-time mother until the children were all in school. They rented a tiny four-room house, not four-bedroom, four-room house, located near the runways of Love Field Airport, with the constant sound of takeoffs and landings as the background soundtrack for their very busy family life. In that house, on a very meager income, Pepe and Irma invested their lives in their children. All six children graduated from college, and some have attained master's and doctorate degrees. Recently, I learned Pepe retired from making shoes and repairing them. Irma retired from part-time work as secretary of their Catholic parish. And they spend these days of their lives enjoying their numerous grandchildren. Dave has five kids on his own. Now, this is a major way to lay down one's life, to place the needs of others above our own. Pepe and Irma laid down their lives for those six children. All in the family would say it was worth it. Being an apostle is to live in the world as if following Jesus mattered to you. When we lay down our lives in such a manner, two things happen. We imitate the self-giving life of Jesus, and we grow closer to him in doing that. To imitate the self-giving life of Jesus and to grow closer to him in doing that is to live in the world as if following Jesus mattered to you. Now this, I admit, this can be difficult at times. How can we maintain our focus in doing it? Consider a helpful question that you can use at any time. Will what I'm about to do Help me grow in my relationship with Jesus. Will what I'm about to do help me grow in my relationship with Jesus? For that is what the Christian life is all about. Growing in our love for Christ, which manifests itself in self-sacrificing love for others. Will what I'm about to do help me grow in my relationship with Jesus? I believe we can do this right now. We can take some quiet time and examine our lives, and we can discern what laying down our life for others can mean for us right now. For here we are, gathered around a table in an upper room. Jesus is speaking to us at the Last Supper, and we have drawn near so we can hear his every word. 
what would change in our lives today if we listened to Jesus if, if it, as if it was the last thing he said to us, what he truly wanted us to do? What would change in us if we promised him, as we would a beloved friend or family member in their final moments, that we would love others as he asked us to love, that we would bear fruit as he asked us to do? Can you imagine what our lives in the world around us would look like then? Can you see it? Well, what prevents us from living like that now? Yes. What indeed?